Good morning. We, we just sang something, and I want to bring your attention back to it, because I want to ask you the question. Sometimes I think we just go through routines, and we sing things, we, we say things, and we don't really think about what we're actually saying. More than our comfort, Jesus is better. And I want, I'm tempted to ask, do you believe that? As if that's just something that's yes or no. See, I, I think we believe it in part. It reminds me of the guy who's sitting there with Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, that next line where we beg, we long that he would help us believe, to believe that Jesus is better than our comfort. I want to ask you, do you want that? I mean, really, think about what that might mean through sickness, through trial, through suffering. Think about what it really might mean with your spouse, with your child, with your work, with your own ego, to really cry out and say, Jesus is better than my comfort. See, if we really ask that question and you really will give it over to your meditation, I want to tell you what it does for me, and then it scares me to death. Like, it's one of those things that I'm just a little fearful to even begin to pray, Lord, help me see you greater than my comfort. Because I don't know what he might do, but it kind of makes me afraid. This morning, we're going to get to uh, be pushed in our comfort a little. So we're, we're studying through Acts and we found ourselves to Acts chapter 5. And as you pull up the notes or open up your Bible, however you want to get there to Acts chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I, I want us to personalize something. So many times when we study God's Word and we have these descriptive accounts of people, we tend to either lower them to they're the most horrible, sinful people ever, or we begin to exalt them to like, you know, they're right up there like almost on pier with Jesus. You know, Paul. Wow, that guy, right? And so we, we tend to kind of uh, just remove them from the fact that these are real people. So what I want us to do, and some of you are going to know where I'm going, but I want you to do it anyway. I want you to think of a couple in our church, someone you're friends with, someone you know. They can be in your life group, your study group, on a ministry team with you, but just a couple. just want you to think of a couple, all right? Everyone have a couple, I can see you. I'm looking for, yes, I've got a couple in my mind. All right, we got one? All right, as we walk through this morning, when we mention Ananias and Sapphira, they're the couple. <laughs> Somebody like, oh, no, I want to pick somebody else. All right, that's your couple. You can't change it. You already thought about it, all right? So that's your couple. And hopefully as we walk through the text, it will make more sense, all right? So verse 1 Acts chapter 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Now, Ananias, his name literally means God has been gracious. That, that, 
that's to us seemingly a little ironic continuing how the, you know, considering how the story is going to go here. Especially in the way we want to define grace. And so, uh, just a few general notes here already from verse 1. First, you need to know Ananias and Sapphira are to some degree wealthy in their world. You say, how do you know that? It doesn't say that. It's because they had property to sell. If you had property to sell, you had something back then. So the fact that they had property to sell, they, they are at least on more the top half of people and probably, probably much more higher than that. They're, they're wealthy. They're also believers. They're Christians. They're a part of this gathering. They're part of this church. At no point in this account is there anything to make us believe that they're not. They're one of us. And not only are they believers, but they're known. You know, they're someone's son and someone's daughter. They have friends. They gather in houses. They're coming before the apostles. In other words, the church knows these people. They're not strangers. They're not coming in the enemy. They are among the early church. That's important for us to remember. And so I want you to think of those people that we just named. That's them. You have relationships with them. And the early church had relationship with Ananias and Sapphira. They're not these far out people. They were loved, cared about, and trusted. Verse 2. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there's been this trend that's been happening through these first few chapters as we read in Acts. There were members of the early church who were selling their possessions. They were selling their property, and they were coming and giving it to the apostles and to the church to be distributed to the whole church based on need. The view was, I don't need any of this. God is bigger. I'm going to trust him. He is the ultimate sustainer of life. Let's make my money, my possessions, my resources count for the advance of the gospel and the church. And so, let's just be honest, this is a movement that's happening. It's a trend. And we can talk a little bit more a little bit later about their motive, but here Ananias and Sapphira are going to cash out this property and they're going to give it to the church. But what they've done is they've lied because they've said they're going to give all of it, the full amount. But in fact, they're going to keep a portion for themselves and they're going to give the other portion to the church, something different than they had said. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Ananias shows up without Sapphira. 
He's there without his wife. He comes to the gathering here, this early church, and Peter and the apostles are there. And he's saying, look, here it is. Here's all of it. I'm giving it all. But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, knew that Ananias was lying. He knew that he was saying one thing and doing another. And see, the sin was that Ananias and Sapphira had lied. The sin is nothing to do with giving. I mean, the reality is they're probably giving a very large portion. I mean, think of you right now if I were to say sell your house, give 70% to the church, and keep 30. None of you would probably be too excited about that. That'd be a lot. You wouldn't sit there thinking, man, I'm doing pretty good getting to keep 30. So what I want you to understand is they're still giving. But in their heart, they wanted to put something before the church, to deceive the church, to deceive the apostles, that they were in fact giving it all when that wasn't true. There was a motive of their heart to deceive the church, to appear more spiritual, more giving than in fact they were. And Peter addresses this. He says, look, before you sold it, it was yours. You could have done whatever you wanted to with it. After you sold it, the proceeds, they were yours. But then you came before the church and you said, here's all of it. And you lied. And you lied to exaggerate your spirituality, to exaggerate your gift before the Lord. So very humbly, let me just be real clear. I've committed this sin. Not maybe in something about giving or possessions, but I am certain that throughout my life, there's probably been a lot more times than once, that I have exaggerated something about me in my pride so that others may see me more spiritual and more holy or more together or more giving than in fact I really am. And I know that some of you are super spiritual and you've never done anything like that. But for the rest of us, what happens next ought to be incredibly humbling. Let's pick back up in verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. There in the gathering, Ananias is killed by the Holy Spirit, laid dead, lying in worship. And then what you have next is the first youth ministry event of the New Testament church. You know, we got to work on our next gen. I mean, that, that needs to be a staple youth ministry event. When God kills somebody in the church, the young people get together, have an event, and go bury them. And so we see these young men, they come in, they take Ananias' body, they take him out, and they bury him. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it 
that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. All right, three hours later, Sapphira shows up. Now, just, just give me this random tangent, okay? The gathering is still going on three hours later. I don't want to hear any of you tell me I preach long. Like, we're not, I've never got close to three hours. I mean, maybe we should pursue it, but three hours later, this gathering is still going on, and Sapphira shows up. And she's immediately tested by Peter. Tell me. See, pay attention. The church's pursuit was truth. It wasn't her comfort. And frankly, it wasn't the comfort of the church. I mean, she just lost her husband. I don't know. Maybe they have kids. Maybe her family's in the gathering. Maybe her friends, maybe her life group is there. There's none of that. She's not met with anything like that. She's met with the test. The pursuit of truth was there. It was more important for the church in this early day to define true worship than it was to chase the comfort of the church or the comfort of Sapphira. Verse 10 Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Again, the youth ministry is back at it, burying someone else. And again... Fear comes upon the church. Guys, this isn't just like a, oh, this is a heart-like pounding, adrenaline-racing fear. You ever been in one of those moments like you think you're about to be in a wreck and somehow your heart goes from like 70 beats a minute to like 1,000? That's possible. Have you ever had that happen? This is that kind of a moment. There is a real fear that's happening here. There's a real sense of awe, a real sense of reverence, a real sense that they are witnessing the power of God and his authority over both man and woman. Verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So in the next few minutes, here's what I want us to do. We're going to have to go fast, but I want to lay out ten myth-busting realities. I I, I worked so long to come up with the term myth-busting. I mean, it's amazing, right? Here's the simple point. These realities that we're going to see described here in these verses in Acts chapter 5, these realities are very counter to some lies we hold. They stretch us. They take us to a place that's a little uncomfortable. And sometimes, for some of us, they flat out tell us we're wrong. 
One other thing about Acts chapter 5 as we walk through this, Acts chapter 5 right here in this section is a descriptive passage. In other words, there's not anything in here that's just prescriptive. In other words, a prescriptive statement is, thou shalt not kill. This is a description of God's work within the context of the early church. It shows us the church in action as it is prescribed to be. And what's even more special about this is the action taken here is led by the Holy Spirit. We clearly can see God at work in the context of this early church. So I want you to notice these ten realities here in Acts chapter 5 in these first 14 verses. First, our Father sees our sin. Our Father sees our sin. God saw Ananias and Sapphira's sin. He sees our sin. As believers, as Christians, God sees our sin. Perhaps the greatest example of that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here they're gathered to take the Lord's Supper. And Paul is talking, he says, some of you are doing this in an unworthy manner. He says, examine yourself first. And then he says in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Believers, gathered to take the Lord's Supper, doing so in sin, doing so outside of a life of repentance, are sick, ill. Some of them have even died. Listen, God sees our sin. He sees our sin. Verse 32, Paul goes on, he says, When we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, there is a heresy among us that says God only sees Jesus when he sees us. He's blind to our sin. Listen, church, you have been declared righteous. It is a declaration of the account of Jesus that is given to you. But if you are a follower of Jesus, God is at work in you currently, today, tomorrow, doing what we call sanctification. He is sanctifying you. He is making you into what he has declared you to be. And because it is God who is ultimately sovereign, his declaration is as good as done. It is that already not yet balance. But do not kid yourself. God sees our sin. Second, God hates our sin. Not only does God see their sin, God kills them. He kills them. God hates our sin. The psalmist in chapter 5 verse 4 is describing God and he says, No evil dwells with you. You hate all evildoers. See, church, listen, we should hate our sin because our aim is to be like Christ. Listen, God hates our sin. We too should hate our sin and the very sin nature that is within us raging war and we should long, long to overcome it, to be sanctified. That's why Paul writes to put to death 
therefore, what is earthly in you in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death the sin that is within us. John Piper has a great quote about this. He says, there is a genuine and proper self-hatred that is essential to fighting the fight of faith. Do you hear that? There is a healthy self-hatred. Now, anything can be an extreme. Listen, we can run into it to an extreme to where we mourn our sin and we do not celebrate Jesus' work. We can also run to the extreme to selfishly abuse Jesus' work and minimize our sin. Third, our Father punishes us when we are in sin, sometimes severely, always lovingly. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says this better than anything I could ever say. Listen as the author of Hebrews writes, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. How does he discipline them? In love. He loves them. That's why. And chastises every son whom he receives. This is family. We're talking about those who are sons. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left out without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Listen, here's why we're disciplined by the Lord. But he disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in his holiness. That we may be sanctified. That we may be like Jesus. That we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God hates our sin and he loves us enough to discipline us and the punishment we receive from God is for the good of us and the good of the church not God sitting there going I'm going to get you it's for your good it's for your growth it's for your purpose and if you claim saving faith in Jesus, then what you're acknowledging is that all value and all worth is wrapped up in him. And that it is your mission, your purpose to be like him. It's what you long to be. And when you stray and when you sin, you are thankful for the conviction, for the conflict, for the discipline that the Lord would bring in your life that would cause you to live a life of repentance and return and grow for your benefit to be like Jesus. So we see this happening. Fourth, our Father gives grace that is transformational, not tolerant. See, we oppose grace and merit. We don't earn favor with the Lord. We don't earn 
our standing in heaven. That's merit. We do not oppose grace and human activity. The grace of God works in us, through us. We are a part of it. How that works is really deep and really hard. And frankly, it's probably beyond my understanding. But what I know is there is human activity that works alongside of the grace of God. Paul speaks of this in Philippians 2. He he says in verse 12, work out your salvation. Paul's talking to the believer and he's telling them to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, there is a movement in Western Christianity. I like to call it a movement for weak sauce grace. I love that word, weak sauce. It's just a weak sauce grace. It's the grace that says grace is big enough to save you. And it's all just grace. But after you've been saved, you are just going to float around in your sin and God's just kind of tolerant and you're just kind of there and it's just accepted because that's what grace does and you're just waiting for more grace. Listen, don't accept such a weak sauce grace. God's grace is bigger than that. It's more powerful than that. Demand something more. Demand a grace that will not leave you in sin, but a grace that is big enough to deliver you from it. Demand a grace that is not tolerant, but is transformational, that is at work, not just in your justification, not just in your regeneration, that moment of salvation, but a grace is that work in you every day, sanctifying you, making you more and more like Jesus. A grace that makes you spotless, without blemish. A holy bride fit for the Son of God. See, listen, evidence of grace in our life is not highlighted by our sin. Evidence of grace in our life is highlighted by our Christ-likeness. Because grace is at work in us. Not excusing us, transforming us. Five, the Holy Spirit reveals truth, we lie. John 16, verse 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. God reveals truth. On the other hand, Jeremiah 17, 9 speaks to our heart and says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, here the Holy Spirit is revealing and pushing on Ananias and Sapphira. But Ananias and Sapphira are lying. And there's no doubt in my mind, because I'm going to assume I'm a lot like them, that they've worked up some justification for what they're doing. They're selling perhaps the majority of everything that they have. And maybe retirement is looming. What if something happens to Ananias? How will Sapphira make it? And so they've decided if we just can keep this portion. And by the way, I don't know, maybe they felt some peer pressure. I want to just, I just wanted you to think about this for a moment. Let's say for a moment Jennifer Lauren goes to some amazing like David Platt conference and comes back and realizes that she's wasting tons of money on makeup 
And she's not going to wear makeup anymore. And by the way, the Bible teaches women to be modest and to just kind of push those things aside. And so she's going to go that route. And she begins to talk to others, not, not because she's trying to legalistically make that for you, but that's just a passion that she has. And it makes sense to a few more ladies. And so a few more ladies and a few more ladies and a few more ladies. And before you know it, there's like 100 ladies that are running around makeup free in our church, giving all the money to missions. If you're sitting there, you're wearing your makeup, you show up on a worship day, you look around, all these, all these, all these women run around with no makeup on. How do you feel? Now watch this. They didn't say a thing to you. They didn't put a yoke on you. They just pursued something that was faithful for them. You feel any pressure? See, Ananias and Sapphira in this culture is moving around and I'm certain in some way they felt the need to justify this and I'm sure that they did but I want you to see Peter's response they may have felt pressure to sell their possessions but Peter didn't act based on how they felt he wasn't just kind because they felt peer pressure their feelings were negligible. They were known and they had connections within the church. Remember those people? You knew them. They're known. And yet, Peter didn't act based on their relationships and their connection within the church. Remember, they had money and they were willing to give a big portion of their money. I can imagine if this happened today. And the leadership, we would get together and say, well, look, I mean, I know they did this thing, but they did give a lot of money. I mean, they were trying to be faithful. Let's see the good in what they were doing. Can't you see us trying to rationalize their sin, to lower the standard? Peter doesn't do that. He doesn't act based on their contribution. Peter acts to reveal truth and to lead the church toward pure worship. Listen, whatever the result may have been. Because if you're like me and you're thinking, if we really operated that way, man, people be out of here. Number six, healthy fear is part of our worship. Compromised comfort is not. Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Twice in verse 5 and verse 11 here in chapter 5, the church is filled with fear. Let me just ask you a simple question. When is the last time you gathered to worship the Lord and felt fear? Such a reverence for God. Such a brokenness in your sin. Such a longing for repentance that you genuinely felt fear. Shame on our American Christianity and our pride-centered definition of success that would want us to manipulate results. Shame on us for the relational pursuit of comfort and acceptance that has failed you. The truth of the matter is the God that we worship sees you. He sees your sin. He hates your sin. He will be at work in your life, disciplining you, calling you to the full stature of Christ, Ephesians 4. And we 
should long for it. We should want it. We should live a life of repentance. And in us, there should be such a reverence for the holiness of God that it should be convicting to us. The Christian life is not all just run around in just peace. Some of it is broken and filled with suffering and sorrow and longing for what is promised and will be but has not yet come. Again, notice Peter's action. He does not apologize to the church. Could you imagine if that happened today? I mean, really, that happens. I'd be up here, now guys, listen, if this is your first time at Tri-Cities, this doesn't happen every week. People do not get killed by the Holy Spirit here every week. Come back, it's okay, I don't, I don't want you, listen, don't, I know it's uncomfortable. But can you imagine? Peter doesn't do any of that. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't try to spin it. He doesn't address the discomfort in the room. Number seven, Jesus requires uncompromising purity from us. Say, so what's the goal? I mentioned it in Ephesians 4, the full stature of Christ. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5 as Paul writes. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. This is the Christians. Listen, that he might sanctify us having cleansed her by washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In other words, perfect that she might be holy without blemish. This is what we are called to be. The perfect, spotless, holy bride of the Son of God. This is what we should want and we should long for. And do we still have a sin nature in us that is at war with us, that is constantly fighting against us, that is constantly pulling us down? Yes, we're not perfect. But what we should long and pursue with repentant, broken hearts, crying out, for the work of God in us is to be sanctified before the Lord. Which of you, I mean, would have a wedding in which the bride has not spent like months getting ready for that wedding day? I mean, look, they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, they've got haircuts. Like, they're getting haircuts like every week. they got all kinds of stuff. They plan out what they're wearing. They, I mean, everything. They are preparing for their wedding day. They're excited for it. They long for it. They're pursuing it. And most, most brides, if you really talk to them, they know they're not perfect. But in the pursuit of being the bride to their husband, they long for it. Number eight, Jesus gives us the ministry of reconciliation, not comfort. The ministry of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. That although our sin separated us from God, the Father loved us enough to send his only begotten Son, that whosoever would place saving faith in him, recognizing him as the Son of God, perfect, dying in their place, so that they may be reconciled, brought back into right union with God, has cried out to him and claimed him as Savior and as Lord. Listen, to proclaim that message to the world, that is our 
mission. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about this. Listen, there's no sign of passivity or comfort that happens here. Let me give you a bold statement. Church, listen. No unbeliever or no believer in sin should feel comfortable around the gathering of God's people. They should feel welcomed, they should feel loved, but they should not feel comfortable. You say, why, what, what? what? Because around God's people, that lost person, if you really uphold the gospel, you recognize that in their lostness, they are the very enemy of God, and their sin has separated them from God, and if that very moment they were to die, God would be just and would act and separate them from himself for all of eternity in a literal hell. Now, if someone believed that about you, do you think that would be comfortable? You can believe that and proclaim that in love. You can be welcoming and you can be kind. But your message is a confrontational message. And that is a reality that is given to the church. And you say, if, if we do this, if we live in such a way and we call people to repent, people won't want to associate with us. And that's correct, and that's how it was in the early church as well. Number nine, our faithful words and deeds communicate the high cost of belonging. Verse 13, this verse has messed with me since February of this year. I don't know how many times I've read Acts a lot. I, I think somehow this verse got added like in the last year. I, it never hit me until this past year, but I want you to listen to verse 13. It's powerful. None of the rest, none of the unbelievers dared join them. Did you hear that? None of the unbelievers dared join and gather with the Christians. The cost was too high. They lived, a, I mean, they sold their possessions and gave it all to the church. They were living their life in a full belief of what they proclaimed. And it was so radical. There's no way you would be part of that apart from the saving work of Christ in your life. And so none of the rest dare join them. But listen to what happens next, what it says next. But the people held them in high esteem. Why? Because they were consistent. There wasn't a disconnect between what they proclaimed and how they lived. They genuinely looked different than the rest of the world. They were respected. They were held in high esteem. But their lives showed a cost that made the world uncomfortable. John 12, Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. See, that is the proclamation of the gospel. That we must repent and die to ourselves and long for a new life in Jesus. That's the aim. That's the direction. That's what we proclaim. Think about this for just a moment. Is gathering with Tri-Cities Baptist Church that much different than gathering in a social outing at Fun Fest? 
I mean, if I'm here and I don't know Jesus, and by the way, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you've never made a profession of faith in him, listen, I want you to know you are welcomed and you are loved. And the message that I am proclaiming to you this morning, listen, God loved you. Even while you were in your sin and unfaithful to him, he loved you enough to send his son for you. But I want you to think about this for a moment in the context of the church. The lost person that would show up here among us, would they be any less comfortable than at taste of the Tri-Cities? Think about that for a moment. Within the context of here, what we're having described for us is the New Testament church, so much of our church growth strategy, so much of what we've been kind of told and held up doesn't really line up with Scripture. See, an unbeliever or believer in sin cannot feel comfortable within a faithful, missional church. Why? Because we proclaim one God, we preach repentance, and we pursue Christ-likeness. But listen, they'll hold us up in high esteem if we proclaim in both word and deed. If we preach repentance and love and first to ourselves. And third, if we will pursue Christ's likeness consistently. Say, if the gathering is that intense, no one will come. Here's how we're going to close. Listen to the tenth one. Authentic multiplication comes through transformation, not compromise. Verse 14, that's the context. Everything that we've just set up, this is the context of the New Testament church. This is the gathering. This is the call for repentance. This is the cost. All those things are in play. Verse 14, they've just watched two people be killed by the Holy Spirit in the gathering. Their youth ministry drug them out and buried them. Verse 14. And more than ever, okay, let, let, let's qualify that before we even say another word. This is following Pentecost. That was a pretty big revival. Thousands, right? Come to know Jesus. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. I think our church growth strategies are so wrong. It's very likely that our churches are filled with people who have kind of a moralistic, surface understanding of Christ. And they're just there. And our churches are so watered down that they feel no different than any other social gathering in our world. And the question we must ask ourselves, not as the big institution of the church, not as the collective assembly, but each one of us individually must ask ourselves, is that the way it should be. Three points of application as the band comes up to play. Three big takeaways for you this morning. I told you this was kind of uncomfortable, right? This is, this, is, this is hard, and I get it. But there's three big takeaways that we can implement today, this week, and moving forward as the church. First, humbly pursue a life of repentance. Humbly pursue a life of repentance. If you're here and you've never placed saving faith in Jesus, begin today. Today is the day. 
Cry out. Recognize that your sin separates you from God. And in just a moment, I'll be down here. I'd love to talk with you. At the close of our service, we'll have leaders right outside these doors to your left. They'd love to talk with you. Those of you who are in the family of God, listen, repentance doesn't just stop at conversion. We are constantly fighting the battle to put to death our sin and to live in the Spirit. Mourn our sin, repent, turn from it, pick up our cross, and daily pursue the full stature of Jesus. Number two, lovingly call others to repentance. This is the ministry of reconciliation that we are given. This is what we see modeled by Peter here in Acts chapter 5. A pure worship that is held up both for the unbeliever and for the believer. And third, church, listen. Do these things and trust the Lord for multiplication. Trust the Lord for the salvation of your family, for the salvation of your friend, the salvation of your co-worker. And stop trying to just show so much tentativeness and passiveness that you might somehow convince them into the family of God and instead hold up and live out something that is pure in front of them. Proclaim the truth of who God is. And trust Him for multiplication. The greatest growth that happened in the New Testament church happened right after the Holy Spirit killed two people in their gathering. Trust the Lord and His sovereignty with His message and His work in people's hearts. What I'm going to ask you to do at this time is to bow your head and go to the Lord in prayer. And I'm going to specifically ask for this to be a time to focus on repentance, to focus on our sin that separates us, to long for a deeper understanding of who God is. That in the fear of the Lord, we might gain wisdom. that we may be able to both mourn our sin and long for more and at the same time rest knowing that God is at work in us and He has begun a work that He will complete. And that as we sing this song, we would be reminded that our goal, our passion, our longing is not to be tolerant in our sin, not to be passive or accepting of it, but we long to be spotless. We long for God's completed work in us for the day that we are presented before Him spotless. Pure, holy. Our story isn't possible without Jesus on a cross, but it ends in a wedding, a presentation of the church to our Savior. Lord, give
Forgive us, your people, the wisdom and the belief to know that Jesus is better than our comfort. And may this morning, we, may we lay down sins and strongholds before you. May you bring to our attention the lies that we lie to ourselves and to the church and to the Holy Spirit. And may we hold up a definition of worship this morning that is pure and that brings joy and honor and glory to you. A definition of worship that is not understood outside of the body of Christ that would make the world feel uncomfortable because it is so anchored into your holiness. A definition of worship worship, Lord, that is worthy of your son Jesus. I pray you give us that heart this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.